0: Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. For better or for worse, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of the First World War brought about the Middle East of today. In an ongoing series of podcasts, New Lines has been exploring how that crucial turning point set the course of history in motion. In our first episode with Eugene Rogan, we explained the circumstances behind the empire's fall. Later, we spoke with the historian James Barr about how European colonial powers attempted, and failed, to fill the power vacuum the Ottomans left behind. But one cannot understand why the empire's fall was so consequential, why an Ottoman-less Middle East was such a big deal, without understanding first how the Ottomans made their mark. The Ottoman sultans reigned for more than 600 years. In that time, they conquered almost all of what we consider to be the Middle East today, as well as North Africa, Southeastern Europe, and parts of East Africa. I'm joined today by Mark David Baer, a professor of international history at the London School of Economics, and the author of The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs. We'll be looking back at the story of the Ottoman Empire before the fall, the story of how a minor Anatolian principality rose to dominate the Middle East and claim both the Caliphate and the Roman Empire. Mark, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me on
0: the program. I think we should start by trying to work out who were the Ottomans. The name Ottoman refers to the Turkish dynasty which ruled the empire and comes from its founder Osman I. But when we talk about the Ottomans, we don't just mean
1: the royal family, do we? What did it mean to be an Ottoman? When we think of the Ottomans, we think of the new class of rulers and warriors that the Ottoman family created. So from the beginning, from the earliest century of Ottoman rule, the Ottomans incorporated diverse peoples as part of their enterprise. So it's a mistake when we think of the Ottomans today. We think of them, people often talk about the Ottoman Turks and think of them exclusively as Sunni Muslims. If we go back to the very beginning, Osman was a Turkic chieftain. Who surrounded himself with a number of Christian retainers, and whose right-hand man was a Greek, who a Greek prince, who, mm-hmm. a, a decade, a dozen years later, would convert to Islam, but for a dozen years, was there helping Osman in his conquests and in his strategic alliances. So we always have to think about the Ottomans as, as being something that's encompassing something that's diverse and something that's creating something new. Do I understand it properly that you think of it as, in the beginning,
0: before they claimed the title of Caliphs, as just being another empire, one motivated by
1: power rather than by religion? Well, again, if we go back to the beginning, the Ottomans have no genealogical claims to rule over Muslim peoples. They're not related to the family of the Prophet Muhammad. The Ottomans also have no genealogical claims to the Mongols and the mongols of course were these great uh, imperial uh, rulers who covered the middle east and some of the other turkic dynasties could claim a, f- a familiar relationship too even to genghis khan the ottomans mm. could not so they they could not claim anything so the ottomans could only conquer by power and conquer and then rule by justice these were their their only uh, really the only legitimating forms of them staying in power.
0: And as I said in the introduction, the Ottomans ruled for 600 years, and that's an astonishingly long time to rule. How, given some of the, some of the uh, uh, setbacks that they had in not being able to claim the genealogy, how were they able to maintain an empire that was so extensive,
1: so religiously diverse, uh, ethnically diverse for so long? The Ottomans were practical, just as they were ideological. And their ideology changed over the centuries. You already mentioned a couple of times the Ottomans becoming, proclaiming themselves caliph. This wasn't until the middle of the 16th century under Suleiman, who was the first Ottoman ruler to call himself caliph. But for the previous how many centuries the Ottomans couldn't make, didn't make such an overarching Sunni Islamic claims. They had other, they had other ideologies. They've practiced uh, different versions of Sunni Islam, some of the Sufis, some of the spiritualists in their in the center of power, at the center of power, practiced Islam in a way that Muslims today would not even consider to be Islamic. So the Ottomans' ideology is always changing. So is their method of rule. Now, f- for the early centuries, the Ottomans adapted two policies that had enabled them to consolidate the rule, to expand and to retain the loyalty of their subjects and servants. And one of these policies was what I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, which was Mm. the means of creating a new administrative and military class called the Ottomans. So they took Christian boys from their conquered territories. So young boys and young men. They brought them to whatever the capital was at the time. They converted them to Islam. They trained them and they taught them the Islamic languages. And then based on the boys, either their intellectual abilities or their physical strengths, their capabilities, they were either going to be the leading administrators of the empire or the leading soldiers. And the Ottomans created their elite branch of the military, the Janissaries, in those early centuries, for about three and a half centuries, exclusively from converted Christian boys. So mm. this, was, this was one of the methods that enabled them to rise, expand, and maintain power. Another ruling method was the way that they divided up the empire. Now, I mentioned the Mongols earlier. The Mongols had ruled the largest empire in world history, but the Mongol way was for the ruler to divide up the empire, empire amongst his sons. So the great Genghis Khan had a great empire. But his sons divided it into, eventually you had four empires and more. So ever smaller territory. The Mm. Ottomans saw the problem with that system of administration, but they retained part of it. So what the Sultan would do would be to send his sons as governors, these princes, to the different regional capitals. There they would train in the arts of war and administration under the oversight of their mothers. And then when the Sultan passed away or died of plague or was killed in battle, then his sons raced to the capital to be the first ones to be proclaimed as sultan along the way, battling their other brothers. And once they came to power, once they were accepted by the religious class and by the administration and by the military, then they would murder just about every other living male relative. So this was their strategy of keeping the empire intact. And again, this method of fratricide, this ruling practice of fratricide was continued into the 17th century. And again, this was, these were the centuries when the Ottomans created their administrative class of Ottomans and when they practiced fratricide. These were the centuries in which they expanded and took over a large part of the world you talk about this ruling class which was not muslim
0: how did they manage to there was that certain diversity in the empire and this is part of the the central point of your book that there was a lot of linguistic and ethnic and religious diversity within this empire but then how and that was that was one of the fundamental pillars of their institutional strength but then how did they maintain loyalty to the sultan if it wasn't through ethnic links
1: if it wasn't through religious links just to clarify these new soldiers the janissaries they were converted so although they may have been greek say or bulgarian or croatian they were converted to islam so Mm -hmm. and they would were supposed to leave their religion behind and the language behind and the culture behind and partake in this new Ottoman culture, which brought together Arab culture, Turkish culture, Persian culture, Byzantine culture, uh, other European culture, Central Asian culture, you name it. It's a new creation, bringing together the best of East and West in literature, in art, in poetry, and even in warfare. So they created this new class, but again, not to be confusing, but again, for a couple of centuries the ottomans also allowed christians to remain christian and to fight for them so there were soldiers on the frontiers who were christian and and fighting for the ottoman sultan without having to convert so it's only this oh. elite only this elite janissary group um that is made into the elite of the military that is converting the other point to make is that the ottomans also even in the period when they had their greatest Sunni Islamic ideological claims, even when the Sultan was proclaiming himself the caliph in the 16th century, they were employing Shi'i Muslims as administrators, as governors, and uh, having them, again, um, battle on the frontier in places such as Lebanon. Mm. So, So the Ottomans were always as pragmatic as they were ideological. So if the person who, who or the group of people who had the greatest medical knowledge in the world, they, they thought at the time were Jewish and from Spain, then they would employ them in the palace. If the greatest scientist of the day uh, were you know, Iranian or Greek, or, it didn't matter. So they would bring these people in and at different points in time, these people were allowed to remain. Um, as they were. Again, going back to the Jews, for example. So when every other kingdom in Europe was forcibly converting, was massacring and expelling Jews, the Ottomans took them in. They took in the Spanish and Portuguese Jews, and they allowed those Jews who had been forcibly converted to Catholicism to return to Judaism. So this is, again, this gives you uh, a picture of the Ottoman way of balancing diversity and mm. using it um for their for their own purposes of course for their because if they thought that you know the jews were the best physicians in the world then of course they want them to come in and serve the sultan
0: right i was going to ask you about to go back to the loyalty question about how they maintained loyalty among for example um the shia or Um, The Christian soldiers. But then I wonder if perhaps that's the wrong way to ask the question, if that presupposes the idea that a religious empire can't have diversity within it. Actually, it seems like the answer is that these Shi'a communities, these soldiers, the Christian soldiers saw themselves as being loyal to the empire,
1: regardless of the faith. Absolutely. And what mattered was loyalty. So that's why the Ottomans at some times would persecute Shi'is, Selim the first, for example, is well known for massacring tens of thousands of Shi'is as he went on campaign, traveling across Anatolia towards Western Iran to engage the Shah of the Safavid, Shah Ismail. So we know that. At the same time, the what mattered, as I mentioned, was loyalty. So there were other Shi'is who were left alone. There were Sunni Muslims who were attacked, and persecuted by the Ottomans precisely when they rose up against the dynasty and proclaimed that their own Sufi leader was the caliph or was the one who should sit on the throne. So again, these were Sufi Muslims. These were Sufis. These were members of Sufi orders that at times had supported the sultanate. But when a leader arose going against the dynasty, then they would be of course, uh, engage in battle and their leaders would be executed. So again, I think you're absolutely right. What mattered was loyalty. If we go back to these converts, these converted Christian boys, they were given the chance to rise up in the wealthiest, uh, perhaps one of the wealthiest, one of the most powerful, one of the most incredible societies in the world at the time. So imagine you're you're a village boy in Bulgaria, And then you're brought in and you understand that through your connections and through your hard work and through your your self-discipline, you can rise up and you might become the grand vizier and live in a gorgeous palace and have all the, the wealth and power at your fingertips.
0: Hmm. I mean, this is something actually that came up in a conversation we had with actually one of your colleagues, um, um, uh, Professor Leopi, and we were asking about why the Albanians in particular had such an important role in the empire. And it sounds as if the answer is that they were just one of multiple groups of, of minorities that ended up in the seat of power and just rose because they had
1: natural abilities, they were clever, they were strong, whatever it was. Of course, and also, or you can mention the Croatians. Croatians often ended up being the grand vizier. Why? What is it? I mean, the Ottomans also they also believed the dynasty believed that different groups had different innate powers, and so it wasn't mm-hmm. racial thinking. It wasn't racism, but it but they did believe in in, in group identity, and they believed that that some groups. Um, we're good at certain things. So um, Croatians, for example, are good at administration or Albanians are good at being a, a certain kind of soldier. So so that's also, mm. that's also part of it. Mm. That's so interesting. Um, I
0: wonder if then your contention is that as the empire declines, that coincides with the
1: rise of nationalism and this turn away from tolerance that's one of the things i argue indeed is that the ottoman idea was this idea of tolerance that if you proclaim your loyalty to the sultan and if you you know if you serve him serve him well again the, the contract is that then you could rise and 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 go along with all this this um, you know what this wonderful empire is doing but tolerance again is a power relation and it assumes that one group has power and grants it well it doesn't grant power but grants the right to life to another group and so this this is um this isn't modern democracy or equality you know i would never promote the ottoman way today i don't mm. you know, we yeah. live in a world where citizens were citizens and we demand equal rights and and we wouldn't accept that the testimony of people from one religious group would be not allowed in courts. Or the testimony of women, for example, wouldn't be allowed, or would would count half as much as a man, for example. Both, both of which happen- happened today. Yeah, both of which happened under the Ottoman Empire. Or, for example, the fact that Muslim women were not allowed to marry Christian or Jewish men, and we know that the only, well, as far as we can find, really just about the only public execution by stoning of an allegedly adulterous couple happened in the 17th century. And the couple was a, a Jewish man and a married Muslim woman. So again, violating that, that social contract. This was mm. a, a society based on very sharp hierarchies. Now, the thing is is that these weren't racialized hierarchies. So someone could convert. A Christian or Jew could convert, enter the Muslim group, and then could gain more legal rights. Uh, slaves, this was a society based on slavery slaves could be released and could become free people. So none of these statuses were permanent, and that's also important to bear in mind. So so the Ottomans aren't a model in that sense, but when we look at history and when we look at tolerant regimes, if we look at the Ottomans from the 14th through the 19th century, then we find that they are indeed one of the most uh, tolerant regimes in history in that They allowed Christians and Jews to live as Christians and Jews with little interference. Now, the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, we move into a a different regime, a different power regime, a different governing structure. All of these these methods of governance I mentioned at the beginning of the talk have gone by the 17th century. You have a, a different army. You have a different understanding of what loyalty means, as you mentioned, in the 19th century, there is the rise of nationalism. The territory of the empire begins to shrink, leading to new conceptions of what is what is the empire and who should belong to it. So the, the late 19th century to the end of empire is almost as if it's a different empire. Mm. And in particular,
0: it is this rise of nationalism and the feeling in the center of the imperial power that they are under siege and that they have to look around and see who can they trust
1: well and they really are under siege with the rise of russia from the 18th century the ottomans really are losing their territory their population is becoming less christian and it is becoming more muslim as muslims persecuted by russia and some of the new states such as greece in eastern europe these muslims flee to the ottoman empire and they, you know, they, their experience is not one of being tolerated, but one of being persecuted. And so, of course, they want revenge on, on Christians. So this also, this is a very different uh, mix of uh, populations and also of views toward the other at the end of empire yeah and i wonder if that particular period has kind of tainted
0: the perception of the ottomans in you know in the the modern eyes because they've come to be interpreted quite differently from perhaps how they would have thought of themselves like in the eyes of turkish nationalists they were of course turks first and foremost but for greek nationalists you know these are the asiatic hordes that con- that conquered constantinople and ended the roman empire but For the Ottomans, and this is the bit that I want to come to because it's part of the central
1: contention of your book, the Ottomans actually considered themselves to be Romans. Absolutely, and they consider themselves to be as European, as Asian, as African. So the Ottomans saw themselves. We know at least from Mehmed II, Mehmed the Conqueror, the one who conquered Constantinople in 1453 from the Byzantines. He's the first to call himself Caesar and 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 that's what he meant he meant he was the caesar of the roman empire that and if you look at mehmed ii's empire the territory it would just about not entirely because it didn't include italy of course but it would nearly and and soon enough the ottoman territory would nearly be the same as the byzantine empire's territory again excluding italy and some other parts so it was the so they saw themselves as the eastern the continuation of the Eastern Roman Empire. And then when they had this challenge from the Habsburgs, who were based in Vienna, who called themselves the Holy Roman Emperors, of course, rulers like Suleiman said, no, actually, I'm the Holy Roman Emperor. And he had, and I write about this in the book. It's well known. It's even been depicted in a a Turkish television um, soap opera. He had a crown made for himself that included the three crowns of the Holy Roman Emperor plus a fourth crown, which was like the papal tiara. And he wore this when he met with Habsburg diplomats, and he wore this helmet as he marched under Roman-style victory arches on the way to the, the, the um, in, in his journeys across Eastern Europe, in Belgrade, for example. so So they clearly called themselves, they really thought that they were the inheritors, they were the rightful inheritors, they were the ones who were going to unite East and West Although this time under Muslim rule, under Ottoman rule, and they didn't call
0: themselves Caesars for the for the prestige of it, they genuinely saw themselves as having inherited the title and the institutions for the Byzantines. Were they
1: accepted by others as having done so? The, the, if we look at if we look at the way others wrote about them at the time, um, Arabs and Persians and Indians would refer to them in these these terms as Caesar. Uh, There were few people in the rest of Europe who would accept it. But this this is the thing, that the Ottomans were a part of European diplomacy from the 14th century. So the Ottomans had allies in the French king. And together with the French, the Ottomans launched naval campaigns against the papal states, against the pope against Rome. They were going to attack Rome together, France and the Ottomans. It didn't work out in the end. The Ottomans also allied with different North African powers, with Morocco and with the Dutch. The Dutch were rebelling against the Habsburgs. The Dutch were fighting their own war of independence, the the Protestant Dutch. And the Ottomans sought out contacts with the Dutch in order to battle the Habsburgs in western europe the ottomans sided with the protestants so so the the christians
0: i want i want to make clear for the audience all christian kingdoms so the french are siding with the christian french are siding Mm -hmm. with the ottomans against the christian italians this is the the model that most people are very surprised to hear about because they imagined it was a christian west versus a muslim east but it wasn't like that at all
1: no and the ottomans are allying with protestants and calvinists in places uh, it, which today are part of the Czech Republic and part of Germany so they were making these contacts and saying we will we will go against the the your oppressors the Catholic Habsburgs and and we will rule in your place so without the Ottoman threat in the East it's doubtful whether Martin Luther's campaign for the recognition would have even succeeded because the 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 Habsburgs had to keep turning around and, and battle against the Ottomans and they the Lutherans, the Protestants, kept getting concessions from the church uh, using the Ottoman threat. Mm-hmm. So, so, this, so we have to think, that's why in the book I talk about the Reformation, that's why I talk about these alliances. The Ottomans had married into other European dynasties, again, from the beginning, whether the Serbian or even Byzantine. The Ottomans sided when there was still a Byzantine Empire before the Ottomans overthrew them. The Ottomans sided with one of the sides in the ongoing byzantine civil war and even intermarried with the byzantine uh, royal family so so this is why i talk about them as a as a european dynasty as well as of course being an asian and an african one and
0: that means that you can't tell the story
1: the political story but also as you
0: mentioned with martin luther the intellectual philosophical story of europe without reference to the ottoman empire because they had direct links with these groups. And then there was also this this sort of intellectual threat which allows people to get political concessions. I agree
1: with that. And and perhaps I'm the only one, but recently we we saw the, the Queen's, I was gonna say coronation, but of course her Jubilee. And at that that the horse guards parade, that ceremony, that first that first that glorious afternoon, I was probably the only one thinking, well, this is this is an Ottoman gift you wouldn't have people on horseback banging kettle drums you wouldn't have a military band without the ottomans the ottomans gave the rest of europe the military band so this is just one of a hundred ways in which the Ottomans were part and parcel of Europe influencing what was happening in Europe, just as what was happening in the rest of Europe influenced what was happening further east. But the story I tell is one where those influences are mainly going from east to west.
0: Mm. This claim to the Roman Empire is something that you talk about a lot in the book. And I want to read this part because there's a wonderful moment about halfway through where you quote from uh, alliance negotiations between Suleiman the Magnificent and Mm -hmm. the French king. And Suleiman refers to him at, length, uh, to refers to himself at length. This is how Suleiman the Magnificent refers to himself. The Sultan of Sultans, the King of Kings, the shadow of God who bestows the crown to the monarchs on earth, the supreme ruler of the White and Black Seas, Rumelia and Anatolia, Persia, Damascus, and Aleppo, Egypt, Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem and all of the Arab dominions, and Yemen, and the Sultan, the Supreme king of many nations. And then he turns to the king of France and calls him the governor of the French province. (laughs) And it's a a really nice quote because it gives a sense of how the Ottomans saw themselves, but also how they were seen. Because, of course, the the king of France interpreted as an insult, but it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility
1: that that is how the sultan would refer to himself. And also we have exchanges between royal Ottoman women and Queen Elizabeth, in which again the the mother of the Sultan refers to her son in, in this in this way, similar to the way you describe Suleiman, and then refers to Queen Elizabeth as, you know, the 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 queen, you know, the um, the queen of the Christians on the Isle of, of, of Britain, this sort of <laughs> this sort of thing. And yeah. this is why, you know, this is why we know Henry VIII, for example, um, looked up to Suleiman and admired the Ottomans. And it's well known in this country now how at, at different uh, festivals, he, would ha- he and his court would dress up as Ottomans with turbans and with the robes. And they would, they would act the part because they, they dreamed of, of being as wealthy and powerful as a, and as a military power as the Ottomans were.
0: And so because you emphasize so much about the, the Ottomans being European. Why do you think that that European character of the Ottoman Empire is so important? I mean, why essentially make it
1: such a pillar of the book? Because, we, you know, when we write history, we want to think of history, how it was lived at the time. So if you go to Hampton Court Palace today, which of course was one of Henry VIII's, well, his, his residence, there is a, there is a gallery where it's labeled uh, portraits of Henry VIII's uh, rivals let's say or you know other monarchs in Europe at the time and there's Charles VIII and there's the French king but there's no Suleiman so mm. we know that Henry VIII owned a portrait of Suleiman but the curators of Hampton Court Palace don't put it up there because we just we just in this country we just don't think of the ottomans as being part of european history and so, you know, it's in a response to something like that that I want to say, actually he had a portrait of Suleiman and Suleiman should be in that portrait gallery because when Henry VIII was looking at the world, he he wasn't just looking at France and as far as Vienna. He had a he he understood global history in a way and he was thinking further east and the threats and the powers and the potential alliances there. So so I want to rewrite the way the story, the the way we talk about our past in this country, in in England, in the United mm-hmm. Kingdom, and also in other parts of the West. So, in in France, for example, they they they, they you know it's you know, it's inconceivable today to talk in France about these Ottoman French military alliances, I and mean, people would would laugh you out of the out of the hall if you talked about that because of the 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 state of you could say the discourse about Muslims in France today they couldn't imagine that there ever was such a powerful muslim power and that it was even superior to france and that france was allied with it the most christian king the french king going against the pope so today people couldn't couldn't imagine that so so when we write books like this we we want to revisit the past as the past was and it's it's always surprising yeah
0: the one part that i think i was a bit wary about was the the urge to emphasize the country's uh, the empire's europeanness and there's you know there's a long history especially in the middle east of of treating europe as something to aspire to as a mark of civilization a superiority it's noteworthy for example that there aren't any best-selling books emphasizing the asianness of the roman empire for example Mm -hmm. Uh, i wonder if that's something that
1: concerned you as you were writing the book no what i was trying to do was to take these concepts such as renaissance And to not just say, okay, these are the standards of history writing, and I work on a Muslim empire, so I'm just gonna fill them, I'm just gonna fit them in. And because Europeans are the ones who define historical epochs, and if we don't fit them in, then they don't count. It's not what I was trying to do. So in the chapter on the Renaissance, I write about Mehmed II as a Renaissance prince. And because he had medallions struck by the same artist who struck medallions for the Byzantine. Uh, ruler and also for Italian princes he also had you know he had on the back of this medallion he had Ancient god, gods um, inscribed there, the god of war, Mars, and so on. So I want to talk about a shared culture that includes East and West. So in other words, it's not just saying, oh, how, we're as good as the rest of you, if we're taking an Ottoman point of view, but yeah. saying, actually, the Renaissance didn't stop in Italy. In right. fact, the same Renaissance painters, again, they went to, the uh, II hired a very well-known Renaissance painter to, to make his portrait. And so we often think, oh, medieval Muslims, Sunni Muslims, they are against the graven image, they're against painterature, but of course not. He had his, he had his portrait done as, as did most sultans. So, so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take these categories, or the age of discovery, for example, the age of exploration, and I'm trying to show that it was different than the way it's traditionally thought about and taught about, especially in this country. I think
0: there's a um, the late uh, anthropologist David Graeber referred to the Middle East as the near West. And I think he would agree with you that his argument was that from the perspective an, of an impartial outsider, it makes much more sense to see the West and the Middle East as sharing this broad Judeo-Christian Islamic intellectual tradition, yes. one which has the, the sort of shared Abrahamic faith and then Greek philosophical inheritance and, um, and later, I guess, this uh, focus on mercantile trade
1: absolutely and at you know at times when the ottomans were being influenced by iranian intellectuals and astronomers and artists i talk about that in the book and when they're being influenced by their mongol heritage i talk uh, by heritage i mean not that they're genealogically connected but they connect themselves to central asia so so that's part of it so the ottomans that's why i titled entitled the book khan caesar's and caliphs because the ottoman rulers also called themselves khan's, which is the title of the Mongol ruler. Mm-hmm. So they're they're bringing you know pagan Mongol ideas about law and law giving and tolerance. They're bringing those in together with their role as caliph, so Sunni Muslims and and the tolerance and the hierarchies that go with that, as well as this Byzantine Christian Western inheritance. They're bringing that all together. And again, it's beautifully symbolized by the fact that again, Mehmet the one who, the second, who conquered Constantinople, had three pleasure pavilions built on the grounds of his new palace. And his new palace was built on the, well, really, it's the Acropolis of Istanbul, right after he had visited the Acropolis in in Athens. He has this palace built. And he has three pleasure pavilions. One is in Byzantine Christian style, the decorations, the architecture. One is Islamic, and one is Turkic-Mongol. And this illustrates it beautifully. Only the Turkic-Mongol one survives, but we know that this was this was his intention, and 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 this is this is the vision that I discuss the most in the book. It is strange, isn't it? I mean, when you you try
0: to conceptualize the world as historians do, it it sometimes we forget the role of geography. That when you look on a map, I mean, Athens, was the center of you know, intellectual thought. Is not really all that far away from the eastern cities, especially when you compare it to places like London, for example, Paris and so on. Um, Venice, Vienna, these places are right next to the, um, the the Muslim empires. It would be much easier, for example, to travel from Vienna to Constantinople than it would have
1: been to travel from Vienna to London and certainly to Ireland. Absolutely. But in in our minds, in Europeans' minds, we have set a border in Vienna, and we have written for centuries that the the East begins there. Mm. And so uh, in in this book, I want to reincorporate Europe, East and West. That's one of the main aims of the book. I want to talk about the Ottomans
0: as this world power. And something that comes across very clearly in your book is that the the empire controlled the center of what was really this vast interconnected world system where you had people and you had goods and commerce and ideas flowing freely from one side, from China, all the way across to Spain, all the way down to Somalia. And so how
1: effectively did the, the Ottomans exploit that position in the middle? Well, the Ottomans, and this is why in the book I talk about the age of exploration, the age of discovery. We often talk about... We talk about the Spanish and the Portuguese and their expansion to new, the New World, which was incredibly significant. Of course, the Ottomans never went past Morocco, although the Ottomans did and do have the oldest extant copy of Columbus's map of the New World. So the Ottomans were curious about what the Spanish and Portuguese were doing. They were, they were learning about the new discoveries. They even interviewed Crew members from these voyages. They also obtained other maps from Magellan and so on. So the Ottomans were keen to understand how the world was shaped and to follow what these people were doing. But at the same time, the Ottomans were the, the main, they were the main um, antagonist of the Spanish and the Portuguese, especially the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean. So this also this hasn't been talked about enough. Some scholars are, are writing about this, but it wasn't as if the Portuguese just simply Went and went around the coast of Africa and then went into the west coast of the western coast of India and so on. But it was the Ottomans at every stage of the way were battling them. Were setting up their own coastal enclaves. The Ottomans even conquered some territory in India. And the Ottomans had allies as far east as Southeast Asia, as far east as what is today Indonesia. So the Ottomans are. Just as the Portuguese are moving into the Indian Ocean and trying to tap into trade, the Ottomans are doing the same thing. Now, the Ottomans never tried to make a monopoly, um, unlike the Portuguese. The the Portuguese were quite um, single-minded in in what they were doing. But the Ottomans and the Portuguese, you can see this is what one historian has called a, a global world war in the 16th century. You mentioned Indonesia, actually, and what's particularly
0: striking in the book is the degree to which the Ottoman influence uh, tied together the the Muslim world. Um, You talk in your book about how rulers from as far away as Indonesia and uh, Sri Lanka sought to submit to Ottoman rule. You write that the Mughal emperor had addressed the sultan as the caliph of the world. And even the emperor of China reportedly decreed that the Muslims in China should read Friday sermons in the name of the Ottoman Sultan. So that degree of influence over what at the time was the farthest reaches of the Islamic world was actually
1: pretty unprecedented. Absolutely. And again, the way we tell history in the West is we tell this triumphalist narrative that begins with the Portuguese and Spanish explorations and moves through the French and the English and leads us all the way up into the nineteenth century and the the English ruling the world. But if we step back in time and we look at the 16th century, then we see how strong and powerful and important the Chinese, uh, the different Indian, and then the Ottoman Empire were. And so if we're going to write global history, then we have to look at the whole world at the same time, and we can't just write this triumphalist theological uh, story. The the Portuguese could have been uh, defeated at any point, completely, utterly, by the Ottomans, so we don't know what's going to happen in history we didn't know that these empires would then cross the atlantic they colonized brazil and then of course that was the real difference when they had these uh, just these windfalls of goods and slaves and and people that's what really kicked off the the western european Conquest of the globe by the 19th century, but but as a historian again, you look at each time period you look at each moment of time and you look at See what's happening and and you don't just you just don't think about um, Telling the story that makes your own nation um, proud
0: I want to talk a bit about the caliphate because I think that that is one of the clearest dividing lines between the Ottoman Empire and then the post Ottoman world so under the Ottomans Islam had this globally recognized spiritual leader. And then after their collapse, it didn't. And that's been hugely consequential in the 20th and 21st century, not least because it meant decades of competition for that authority, if not for the title. And also in some smaller way, it allowed for groups like ISIS in the present to seek to claim that religious authority for itself.
1: Well, but we could we could ask whether this claim was ideological and or was it actually was it real? In other words, it was certainly real. That if people said the Ottoman Sultan is the caliph, but it's not as if the Ottoman Sultan was then promoting particular religious dogma or saying that this is true Islam and this is false Islam. So so it's it's um I think what gets confused is the way the caliph mattered the and the role of the caliph from the 16th century till today. It changed over time. There were different understandings of the limits of the caliph's power. There were groups that never accepted the caliph. There were groups that were really upset, especially Indian Muslims, were really upset when the Turkish Republic abolished the caliphate. I believe it was in nineteen twenty four or nineteen twenty five so this this led to all kinds of um, upheaval, especially in South Asia, by people muslims who who wanted there to be caliph and and then and then that allowed other claims to emerge of people um who wanted to to claim that that global role. Is it your sense from studying the
0: history of the Ottomans and thinking about the caliphate that the institution is one just because of the amount of power and prestige that it confers, that
1: the institution is one that might come back? Well, I I think that in, in the Ottoman time, the Sultan was also the caliph. So the, so the caliphate was tied to political rule. Hmm. And so that's something to bear in mind. I mean, real political rule. I mean, the Ottoman Empire was this huge empire, even into the 19th, 20th century, it still was a very large empire, even though it had lost so much of its territory. So, but this was combined, this was spiritual authority combined with political power. And that's something we haven't seen since the the fall of the empire right so it would take some political because actually we're having this conversation
0: with our um producer because you often hear the claim that you know the institution will come back in some form and his view i think is similar to yours that because of how important the institution would be nobody is going to accept anybody else's claim up until the point
1: that there is sufficient political power to claim it which actually Mm -hmm. sorry yeah. And it's also important to remember that you know the Ottomans didn't have absolute power in their own empire. So another theme of the book is how fragile the dynasty's rule was. Yes, it ruled over six hundred years, but every generation of Muslims asks itself to this day: you know, are we being good? Are we you know living the life that we're supposed to live? Are we living according to correct Muslim principles? Um, is our our leader, a valid one. So again, in, in Ottoman, in Ottoman times, there were these Sufis who, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the broadcast, who would, who would rise up against the Sultan and, and proclaim that he he had no right to rule, but only this Sufi Sheikh was the rightful ruler. So, mm-hmm. so that's also something to keep in mind. The Ottomans never had absolute control over even the Muslims in their empire. And there were assassination attempts and throughout their history, and there are uprisings throughout their history as well so i want to end by thinking a bit about the fall uh when we had
0: professor eugene rogan on the show i asked him whether he thought the empire's collapse had been inevitable and he said it wasn't in his view if the ottomans had stayed neutral in world war one they might well have been able to to hold on long enough so that they could begin exploiting the oil resources in iraq and the gulf and that's very similar to the view you were just expressing about the western colonial enterprise that once the west Found these colonial um, states of slaves of cotton and so on they started to have so much wealth that it was very hard um, for any other state to overcome them so something similar could have happened with the Ottomans had they been able to exploit the oil resources in the Gulf I wonder where you sit on that that
1: theory I'm not sure I mean remember at the end of Empire the last really powerful Emperor uh, ruler Sultan was Abdul Hamid II, and of course, there was a revolution in 1908. And then, after a counter revolution by some of his followers, in 1909 he was deposed. So, from 1909 to the end of empire 1922, the sultans that were in power were only figureheads, honestly. Mm-hmm. Instead, the empire was ruled, um, really. Um, by these coup makers, the these 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 generals and um, these these bureaucrats, the the Committee of Union and Progress, a political party that was also like a conspiracy in terms of a a that political conspiracy, they'd start out underground, conspiring against Abdul Hamid II. And when they came to power, they ruled through martial law and they also first had to fight the two Balkan Wars, and then they chose to enter the First World War on the losing side. So so really, we have to think less about the dynasty and more about these, these military men who were running the empire at the end and who made a series of bad choices that guaranteed that the empire um, would fall. They could have chosen, for example, they could have chosen to make us to to keep a smaller empire. They could have given up some of the territories without trying to fight for them. This is even before the war. They also could have made alliances with the different component peoples in the empire and granted some groups autonomy. They could have, there were many options, but those last rulers of the empire, the Committee of Union Progress, these people such as Talat Pasha, they chose war, they chose martial law, they chose repression. They chose not democracy. The Ottomans had briefly had a parliament. They chose not the rule of law, but the rule of terror. And they wiped out their enemies. And they also perceived the entire Armenian people to be their enemy conspiring against them. And so they Talat Pasha launched the Armenian genocide. So so it's these choices, it's of, of these men at the top that led to the Ottoman ruin. You know, whether they've gotten oil or not, um, it's, it's, it's this mindset and this militarism and, and, and nationalism and everything else, a Muslim nationalism, that spelled the end.
0: So it sounds as if you think there was a way through for them to have survived as an empire, but it had to have come, the reforms, the changes, the mindset differences had to have come much earlier than the, the pre-World War I period.
1: Well, they they ran out of time. If they had had 10 years, in 1908, there was this revolution in which they returned the parliament, uh, opened again, reconvened, and there was a chance that there were going to be more rights, and there was a chance that there was going to be democracy, and that society would be reformed, and groups such as Armenians in the eastern provinces were going to be given uh, more assurances of their safety. There had been massacres of, of Armenians under the reign of Hamid II. So, so these were all possible. But again, there was a counter coup, a counter revolution, a year later, and then this just led to uh, ideological extremism in the minds. I mean, the, the, these people became extremists, the CUP, in terms of how they saw the world, and a battle of almost uh, you know, cataclysmic, um, apocalyptic between the, battle, the forces of good and and progressive. People, that that's how they saw themselves versus the reactionaries, how they saw everybody else. So w- with this mindset, again, I mentioned, then they suddenly had two cataclysmic, nearly fatal wars, the Balkan Wars. And then they had the First World War, which devastated uh, the, the entire empire. I mean, everyone suffered. I mean, the, the government sought to wipe out the Armenian people. At the same time, their soldiers suffered greatly at the same time arabs uh, for example suffered for different reasons so you know it was i always wonder if if in 1908 things had been calm for a decade if there hadn't been these three wars if there hadn't been a counter coup if they had been able to institute these reforms then perhaps the empire could have carried on in a more you know democratic and um and and peaceful way, but that's not what happened, of course. <laughs> that's not what happened.
0: How do you? How much do you think the the fall of the Ottomans was simply a result of a, a, a much wider, what you might think of as a w- world historical trend away from these large cosmopolitan land empires? Because the Ottomans weren't unique in their decline. You had the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Russian Empire, even the the Qing Dynasty in China all declined over the 19th century, and ultimately they all collapsed within 10 years of each other. So in a way, it's hard not to conclude that the modern world simply made demands on the imperial mode of governance that they couldn't effectively respond to. So perhaps they just fell because that was, that was the time at which empire had come to its natural conclusion.
1: Perhaps, and I also think, again, it's the First World War. So the First World War spelled the end of, well, the German uh, Reich, of course, um, and what it led to in places like, Parts of Germany and Berlin and Munich and also in uh, the Russian Empire, it led to revolution, left-wing le- revolution. So, so the First World War brought to, brought to a head all these different political ideologies and and answers of the late nineteenth century. And it was it was these imperial families that that lost out. And then we saw a period of more democracy and um, and more power to to normal people. Um, that's what happened after. We can even think of the Turkish Revolution from 1923, the establishment of the Turkish Republic, in a way also as, in some senses, a, a, a people's revolution. What do you think we've lost with the passing of the Ottomans? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> that's the last question. so <laughs> <laughs> um, Because I, I'm not going to be nostalgic for empire. Mm -hmm. um i'm not going to wish the ottomans back i think the ottomans they they existed and they gave us uh, what they gave us and then they passed from the stage of history and now we're in a different stage of history so i'm not going to wish them back i'm not going to as you say you don't think it's a good model no it can't be right and i also don't think that the ottomans can be owned by one group of people are one country today so in turkey today people you know they act as if they own the ottomans as if they they are the inheritors of the ottomans well what about the greeks you know what about the bulgarians what about you know the syrians i mean all these people are inheritors of the ottomans so so the ottomans have left left us a great legacy in terms of culture in terms of history in terms of architecture in terms of food in terms of a remembered past, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be nostalgic about it because what happens is, is people only want to remember aspects of the past that, you know, that they that that help them in their nationalist claims today. So mm-hmm. perhaps a country in a place like Bulgaria, people want to only think about the Ottomans as oppressors and and uh, killing you know, and converting their their ancestors, whereas in uh, in Turkey, they want to think of the Ottomans only in terms of the 16th century when they were grand and powerful. And they don't want to think about the Armenian genocide. They don't want to think about the crimes that the, the dynasty committed. So, So what happens is you have, you have different soap operas, you have different television programs that will tell one side of the story, but often the story is, is, is really not, um, is, tell us about, tells us about how people, say, in Turkey today, want to think about the past and how they think of their current leader and their role in the world. It doesn't really tell us much about the Ottomans themselves.
0: Mark, David, Beyer, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me you can buy mark's latest book
0: the ottomans khans caesars and caliphs in all good bookshops this week's podcast was produced by joshua martin and hosted by me faisal yafla you can subscribe to the new lines magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app and of course you can find more of the best stories from the middle east and beyond on our website newlinesmag.com thank you all for joining us